0: Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with... Spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views,
1: information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. The social scientists that study this estimate that somewhere around 5% of the people in prison in the United States are actually innocent. Mm-hmm. That's 100,000 people-ish. Yeah. That are innocent in prison in America. That doesn't include overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, it's not—it's—it's it's unimaginable. The numbers are staggering, and yeah. But numbers are numbers, and individuals are are, are tragedies. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of Yen, he has such an extraordinary intellect and personality, and you know, it's not lost on him that instead of, you know, sitting in in a cell in a maximum security prison um, in Virginia. He could very well be right now um, having coffee or a drink with Christian Wolff, the former president of Germany, who has offered to mentor him and, and you know, provide him with housing and give him, you know, their, their jobs lined up for him He has a speaking, you know, a, a career in front of him.
2: He's been incarcerated over 32 years. Can you imagine what he's missed out on. I mean, you did, what, four years? I did four. And you know how horrible that must, have. I can't imagine, I can't even imagine four days, Amanda, but he's done 32, it's been 32 years since this man has even touched a tree.
3: When investigator Chip Harding mentioned how much Jens has lost, my mind jumped to the moment I arrived back in the U.S. after my imprisonment, the moment I stepped out of the airplane onto the tarmac. I remember breathing in the Pacific Northwest air and being overwhelmed by the vivid, familiar smell of wet grass that I hadn't smelled for over four years. Not long after that, I went mushroom hunting with my Italian professor, and I was mesmerized by the softness of the earth after years of treading on nothing but concrete. It's a cost that's hard to imagine if you haven't been there. And that's what this episode is all about. Welcome back to The Truth About True Crime. This season, I'm looking into the Sundance Now docuseries Killing for Love, featuring two horrific crimes. The brutal double homicide of Derek and Nancy Hasem and the wrongful imprisonment of Jens Sering. Together, these tragedies echo my own case like nothing I've ever encountered before. The brutal knife-killing in a small town, the young lovers as suspects, the international media sensation. It all gave me deja vu. In the past seven episodes, I've presented the circumstances that put Jens in prison and have kept Jens in prison. And I've laid out who I think bears responsibility and why. In this final episode, I have to take you to a place I sincerely don't want to go. We have to talk about what it would mean if nothing changes. If the message of this podcast cries out into the world and dies as a whisper in the midst of all the other voices clamoring inside our vast media echo chamber we have to talk about the cost of not getting this right and how, like a drop of water in a pond, Yen Suring's wrongful imprisonment ripples out into the world, creating concentric circles of cost. On the outermost edge of this ripple is our society and our democracy. Every time the state gets it wrong, we lose just a little more faith in the fairness of our system, Innocence Project board member Jason Flom, who you heard at the top of this episode, pointed out how this loss of trust starts with the methods used by police.
1: Another thing for people to know, and and you should know this in case you or anyone you love is ever arrested or brought in for questioning for a crime you didn't commit, um, is that they're allowed to lie. Mm. And, And I don't think this is true in most of the rest of the Western world, but in the interrogation room, they're allowed to lie. Not only are they are allowed to lie, all they want. They, they can give you a polygraph, you can pass it, they can say you failed. They can say they found your fingerprints on the murder
4: weapon.
3: False confessions expert Andy Griffiths sees this as a threat to human rights.
4: It's important that the the presumption of innocence and the right not to self-incriminate are protected and uh, emphasized by the police.
5: Because the the um, the point of justice is convicting the right people, but also following the rules. Because, again,
4: that preserves uh, integrity of democracy.
3: The flawed methods and skewed incentives baked into our system don't just impact our trust in our democracy. They exact an enormous human cost. At the moment I'm recording this, there have been 2,438 exonerations in the U.S., Human beings, just like Yens, locked away for more than 21,290 years for crimes they didn't commit. It's a terrible cost to our society, and it's also imbalanced, for when the justice system fails, it doesn't fail fairly. Black people make up only 13% of our population, but 47% of all exonerees. Locking away all these innocent people also costs us a fortune. If you count the estimated 100,000 innocents in prison right now, at roughly $30,000 a year to lock someone up, that's $3 billion we're spending each year just to keep wrongfully convicted people imprisoned. And so far, the state of Virginia has spent somewhere close to a million dollars just on Yen Suring, and in doing so, they weren't just signing their taxpayers up for an unnecessary million-dollar bill. They were impacting their safety.
1: Every time you arrest and uh, ultimately convict the wrong person, the right person, remains free. Yeah. And in most of those cases, they go on to commit other horrible crimes that have other innocent victims, right? So... That's the, that's the other tragedy in all of this, is that when you arrest the wrong person, you stop looking for the right person. And society is harmed on every level.
3: When something terrible happens, like the brutal knife killing of Derek and Nancy Hasem, a community is injected with a huge dose of uncertainty and fear. We want closure. But to begin searching for the two unidentified men who left blood at the crime scene, the men who were actually involved in these murders, we have to admit that Jens isn't the killer. And that would strip Virginians of their closure, even if that closure is a lie. So what do the citizens of Virginia deserve?
4: It's not fair, really, to Virginia, you know? Their system of government and their criminal justice system here is not working properly. And uh, it's really kind of bad for the Hayson family as well, because, you know, I I made a decision when I was a teenager to tell a lie about what happened. And that's my fault. It's my idea. I came up with that. I carried it through, and it, it was wrong and they did not get the truth from me and I owed them the truth. And I've been trying to proclaim the truth ever since, but you know, the, the Haysom family also seems to me deserve a straight answer. And the state could do that for them. The state could give them a clear answer, but it hasn't happened yet and it may not happen at all. And I'm sorry for that. Yeah. It's not so. The point is, it's not just unfair to me. It's it's unfair on multiple levels. Yeah. And I'm not the only one uh, impacted by the state's inability to recognize and fix this mistake.
3: But let's be real. No one has been impacted by this miscarriage of justice more than Jens Suring. In these concentric circles of impact, he's at the bullseye.
4: I believed I was going to die. And so what I did for the first four years of my incarceration under the threat of the death penalty is that I ate as many Twix candy bars as I possibly could. <laughs> I did not take care of myself physically. I gorged myself on Twix candy bars. and you know, Left Twix or right Twix, I didn't care. I ate all the Twix. I ate the Twix in the middle. Um, <laughs> when I go to visiting rooms now, you know, 30 years later, and in the vending machines in the visiting room, I can, you know, we're not allowed to go near the vending machines, you know, security risk, but sometimes you can see a Twix candy bar in the vending machine, and and to me, that's kind of like a trigger because it throws me back Mm -hmm. to that time in my life where I thought I was going to get electrocuted in the electric chair, and the only way I could cope with that was to eat as many Twix as I could.
3: I don't know if that's an um, advertisement for Twix or or something else entirely. <laughs> but for me, um I never was risking death, right? I was risking spending the rest of my life in prison and one thing I you know, I didn't balloon I didn't, like, gorge myself on Twixes. Um, I did have to adjust to having a lifestyle where I was locked in a room for, you know, tw- uh, 22 hours a day. So I had to learn how to be healthy in prison, and, um, and it was important to me because I felt like there were only so many things that I had control over, and I remember that people... Some people were like, "Oh, good for her." And other people were like, "What are you doing? Like, why are you studying? Why are you working out? You're not going anywhere." Like, what is the what is the fucking point? You like you think that you have something to like work out for? Like what, you know, like I I got those kinds of responses and it it was you know, it's not like they didn't have a point. <laughs> um,
4: yeah. Yeah, they, these things are familiar to me. That's, that's very similar to the way it is here. Um, there's a great deal of hopelessness, which then leads to total lack of interest in doing anything to maintain yourself or to better yourself.
3: In a deep, deep way. We're just not built to be bodies behind bars, deprived of movement and nourishment and community and touch. Frankly, it fucks with your head. Of course, you know, I mean Jens get
5: two life terms. For him it's a slow mm. death sentence, you know? It's waiting you do it until you die yourself.
4: After everything I've been through for the last 32 years, 8 months, and 25 days, I can honestly say, um, I wish that I would have just let them execute me back in the early 1990s so that I could have been spared all of that.
3: Are you afraid of dying in prison?
4: Oh, sweetheart, at this stage, death would be a relief. I've thought about this a lot. I feel like I've accomplished most of what I can accomplish anyway because the truth is out now. You doing this podcast, um, the movie Killing for Love, um, you know, the support and the investigative work of real cops like Sheriff Chip Harding, Detective Sergeant Richard Hudson... And um, I'm 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 pretty satisfied. I've checked most of the boxes so far. I have not gotten this lousy state to admit what they did, but um, that's just like you know the the final little dot on the i. Everything mm-hmm. else, you know, I've, I feel I've um, I've accomplished. So I wouldn't mind if I died now. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm good with that.
3: Jens has been fighting every day these past 33 years. And every day, he loses something. Things you don't think you can lose, like bits and pieces of his native language.
5: He didn't speak German for such a while, and um, the thing is, they didn't allow him to read German magazines anymore.
6: I had a struggle to try to get him German literature.
7: Hmm.
6: Um, They let him have a German Bible, but they said... Well, you know, we don't know if it's in a foreign language, it might be telling him how to tunnel out of the prison or something, something wrong that he shouldn't have.
5: He didn't speak German, he didn't read German. So his German was weird, like a little bit rusted in, or Mm -hmm. do you say that, and and I realized immediately that he really enjoyed speaking German, he really, he maybe couldn't find the word. He, he really wanted to
3: speak German. As the days tick by, this psychological cost starts to ruin even the simplest throwaway pleasures, like watching TV. He said he can't watch TV anymore because he
5: can't see all the hamburger advertisement. Mm. Because he didn't eat real meat since, by then it was already 20 years yeah so no real meat for 20 years, and you see these people in TV eating a juicy hamburger, and he said he he can't see the love movies, yeah. or the murder movies, and he always sees himself if a, you know, mm. so he couldn't watch TV at that time.
3: Hi listeners. Amanda Knox here, host of the podcast The Truth About True Crime. If you're a fan of our show, be sure to check out Season 2 of Sundance Now's original audio drama, Exeter, now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Picking up where Season 1 left off, Detective Colleen Clayton, played by Jean Triplehorn, and her partner Pruitt, played by Ray McKinnon, follow a trail of confessions that lead them back to Exeter's most infamous unsolved crime, the brutal murder of two teenage lovers. Colleen and Pruitt must fight to maintain order as the renewed investigation rips open eight years' worth of old wounds in their small southern town. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I still can't watch Orange is the New Black without having a panic attack. That's a small cost to bear, Especially when I'm surrounded by friends and family happy to laugh about those difficulties with me. But what happens when you lose your family?
4: I am losing things now. I'm losing relationships now. I'm losing things that matter to me a great deal. Hmm. And I'm losing them now. It's ongoing. Hmm. And it could be stopped immediately, you know, by somebody having the guts to say, you know, hey. Mm -hmm. 33 years ago, we screwed up. Let's send this guy home to Germany. He can never come back anyway, so let's just, you know. But nobody's got the guts to do that. Mm -hmm. And so they are continuing to take things from me, still to this day.
3: How did your family handle all of that?
4: My family's a difficult subject. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been in prison for 33 years. For the first sixteen years, my family supported me um fantastically. They uh, were just really, really great.:
6: He may have told you, but he he's told some people and certainly told me that his grandmother's reaction to the whole thing was "You should have killed yourself, really. Uh, you've brought, you brought, you know, shame and dishonor on the family, and if, if you had been a true man, you would have killed yourself.
4: Well, my mother died in 1998, but um, in 2001, after 16 years, I um, inherited a bunch of money from my grandmother, mm-hmm. and um, unfortunately, my father and brother help themselves to that money and um, I'm not allowed to say that they stole it because it was all done legally so these are men of honor um, hmm. but somehow they ended up with all of my money and I ended up with absolutely none of it and then I haven't heard from them since 2002 wow. not one word and I hope they're enjoying all that money <laughs> so Really? Um, It's really funny. It's, uh... Again, it's, you know, you think you can trust somebody. I thought I could trust Elizabeth. Wrong there. I thought I could trust my father and my brother. I was wrong there, too. (laughs) Oh, well.
3: And what about Love. I asked Gail Marshall, who spent decades helping Jens navigate appeals and parole hearings.
6: He was a teenager, head over heels in love. Uh, And so maybe what you're asking me is, can he love again? Uh, I think it'd be very hard after being so betrayed. Um,
3: He has a friendship with you.
6: Yes, yes. Yes, and I'm 77. So, <laughs> but I did just. Get well, a letter, I wasn't suggesting you, know. you hook up. I'm just saying. <laughs>
7: yeah,
6: no, but um, I did just get a very sweet letter from him saying, you know, you're my oldest friend, and I really so much appreciate that you're still sticking with me.
7: Mm-hmm. So
6: I think, I think he can, but it's so, um, you know, I, I don't know what life would be like on the outside for him. He would have a lot of. Um, of adjustment, obviously.
4: I would like to have um, very, very much a romantic relationship with a good woman. And Mm -hmm. if I were now to let myself get bitter and say, oh, you know, if I were to walk around with that attitude, you know, do a Tina Turner, you know, Mm -hmm. what's love got to do with it? Nothing but a secondhand emotion, right? Then to me, you know, Elizabeth Hayson won, the prosecutor won, the cop, Ricky Gardner won, the state of Virginia won. Mm -hmm. And there's one thing for sure, Mm
7: -hmm. they will
4: not ever, ever win. I will keep getting up and I will keep fighting them. Mm
7: -hmm.
4: And one of the ways I fight them is by, you know, continuing to believe in the possibility of love. Mm
3: -hmm. Do you remember what it felt like to be in love with Elizabeth?
4: Sure. (laughs) Sure. (sighs) That was probably the only really happy part of my life. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. It wasn't real, looking back. You know, she was lying about everything and there hasn't been a lot of happiness in my life so it's um, not that bad for me most of my life has been you know prison Mm -hmm. and before that it was basically sort of being a teenager and being a child and you know let's be honest Mm -hmm. it sucks being a teenager
7: (laughs) it sucks (laughs) just about everybody right
4: I don't miss joy that much I don't remember too much of it.
7: <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Hearing Yen say that makes me feel incredibly lucky to have my partner, Chris, who's writing and producing this podcast alongside me.
4: Let me say that I'm, I'm happy for you. You know, I'm, um, and I am... I'm, and I'm glad to see that after you were released... Um, you were able to build a successful life for yourself and uh, successful relationships for yourself. I, I hear you're engaged.
7: I'm, I am. I'm really,
4: you know, what you went through, um, I know for myself, um, you know, leaves really, really deep, deep psychological scars having to do with ability to trust others. And mm-hmm. if you, you are now uh, engaged to, uh, from my perspective, pardon me for saying this, I'm a young man. <laughs> um, um, you know, I'm I'm what uh, 22 years older than you. So, um, um, yeah, I mean, look, you were able to even do that. You were you were able to find within yourself the ability to trust somebody else after all your trust was so grievously attacked um, by your experiences in Italy. Mm. Um, That takes a lot, and it says a lot about you. Um, Mm. So congratulations, and I'm happy for you. Um, I really am.
3: I think it says a lot about Jens. Not just that he's happy for me, but that he still believes in love even after the only person he's ever loved betrayed him in the worst possible way. Not everyone is good in a partnership. Some people are better off flying solo. But Yen seems like he's the kind of person built to meet another person's mind. And that makes his current isolation in Buckingham Correctional all the more tragic. But tragedy, in a weird way, also inspires hope. It encourages love, and there's no shortage of that when it comes to Jens' case.
4: It's the only reason I'm alive. Um, It's one of the great ironies of all this, is that, you know, I got myself into this through some really bad decisions made out of love. Um, And the only hope I have of ever getting out is the love of other people they're caring their concern for me mm-hmm. um you know and it's without that <laughs> I, I'd have no hope and I, I would have been dead long ago I, I can't thank them enough um and, and that, I mean that literally I just can't thank them enough mm-hmm. um they're amazing they're really amazing people and uh sometimes i'm baffled that they care about me (laughs) yeah yeah thank you for doing this oh
3: Um. thank you for
4: being a voice you know not not just for me giving me this opportunity but you know I'm in a I'm in a prison with 1,150 men. It's you know statistically there's going to be like 46 to 48 innocent guys in this prison, minimum. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're talking to me. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> but please don't forget these other guys. You know, because yeah. they're here and they're real human beings.
3: I'm not baffled why people care about Jens. This experience has changed him, and Jens seems to change everyone who comes into contact with him. Take investigator Chip Harding, who got involved when Jens's attorney asked him to review the pardon petition.
2: Well, about two hours into it, I called him and said, this was a Friday, can you give me everything you've got and let me take it home? Hmm. And my wife thought i lost my mind. I'd laid everything out on our dining room table and spent the weekend engrossed in reading it, and I was just shocked by what I was reading, how what had been represented in the trial and the media was so different than what the actual evidence Mm. is. You know, I'm a sitting sheriff for almost 12 years, and I've donated probably 800,000 hours on this case now.
3: Pulitzer-nominated journalist Bill Sizemore has spent 10 years reporting on the case, and even wrote a book with Jens. Are you just in it for the long haul? Well, I'm, uh, yes,
1: I, I'm in it for better or worse. Having, you know, once I agreed with Jens to co-write this book with him, you know, and I only did that after concluding that, you know, there was no shadow of a doubt in my mind that he was innocent. Once I crossed that Rubicon, uh, yeah, I, I, I was in it. And, um, you know, I have no regrets about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I firmly believe that he's an innocent man and he needs to be released, and I'm willing to do all that I can to make that
3: happen. So is Virginia Public Radio reporter Sandy Hausman. I would never have thought that I could report on the Yen Sirin case for six
5: or seven years now and have nothing change. It's very Mm -hmm. discouraging. But, you know, I guess what I have learned from this experience and others is that change can often take time. And it's a bit like water dripping on rock. Eventually, you will see change. It's a matter of keeping at it and keeping these stories in the public eye and, you know, hoping that eventually the message sinks in.
3: Jens has an emotional impact even on someone like scientist Tom McClintock, who comes at this case from the cold analysis of DNA.
1: It affects me from the standpoint of You know, our our criminal justice system is awesome. I think our legal system is awesome. We are humans that sin. We are humans that make mistakes. So my heart just goes out to those that have been wrongfully convicted. And it's anything that science can do to make it right, I think, would be just something that I would like to do over the course of my career, and just help those as much as I can
3: through science. There's Karen Steinberger, who co-directed the Sundance Now docuseries Killing for Love. How has this case affected you personally?
5: Um, what I really thought a lot of times is... Gosh, how a a mistake, whatever the mistake is, the mistake to have a wrong friend, the mistake, you know, you make decisions in life, small ones, big ones, one decision. One decision you go to this university, not to another one. You know, I I always, a lot of times think, my God, one decision. At the end of the day, every little decision can be for life, can be life-changing. Hmm. I guess I guess that's something I
3: I think about very often when I think about Jens. Investigator Richard Hudson.
2: Well, I have woken up in the middle of the night thinking about it from time to time, which I hadn't done for 10 years, but so it uh, um, infected me that way. But I mean, I just feel so bad for the guy. And I feel so, I mean, frustration, disappointment, anger. I mean, it's not, I'm not, I'm not mad at anybody, but it's just like this come on i mean if you're if you're if you're all about justice and you're all about the truth you're going to get every one of those genetic samples back to the lab and have every single one of them tested again to get whatever data you can to either prove he did it or prove he didn't Mm -hmm. and that's what i told rosenfield when he when i first talked to him i said steve i'm independent I said, I'm a law and order guy. Lock them up, put them in jail, throw away the key. If That's what they deserve. But if they don't (laughs) deserve it, damn it, they shouldn't be there.
3: Jens' story has affected me, too, a lot more than I was expecting. It's not just the eerie parallels to my own case. It's that I know the personal costs you have to bear when other people get fixated on a false story. So on a personal level... I have to get this story right. Otherwise, I'm no better than all the people who got my own story wrong. And as it happens, Jens's case came to my attention at a very heavy time. Right in the midst of developing this season, I finally received a verdict from the European Court of Human Rights, concluding that my slander conviction, upheld by the Italian Supreme Court, was actually in violation of my human rights. To say the least, it dredged up a lot of old pain. This past week waiting for the European Court of Human Rights verdict unexpectedly um, brought me back into that feeling that I hadn't felt for a long time. I descended into this fight or flight, just, I, I like, I turtled up. I just became this like, I went back into this like small and hunted and fearful little mouse version of myself. Um, and I, I'm grateful that my partner was there to remind me that no one was trying to hurt me, but, like, it made me... And, you know, I was thinking so much about you and about how he's going to talk to you today and how this has been everything for you. I mean...
4: I. I, you want me to comment on that?
3: Yeah, if you feel like it.
4: Um, I've been subjected to that state that you were describing so many times that, um... I've gotten used to it, and over the decades have developed a coping strategy that works for me, Mm -hmm. Um, and that is that um, in every one of these things that both of us were subjected to, um, there was always a phase where you worked very hard and subjected to whatever briefs or whatever was going on, you did a certain amount of work to achieve an end, and then there was a pause while you waited, and that's the time that you're talking about, where there's nothing more you can do, Mm -hmm. and others are deciding your fate, and you're just at their mercy and um, helpless. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I started doing over the decades is that during that phase of waiting... um, I started getting ready for the next thing. Hmm. After the powers that be turned me down again, which is the way I went into these things. Hmm. Um, so it wasn't, that, that particular state of mind that you're describing early on, I basically sort of eliminated that out of my process. Um, and that includes now. Hmm. Um, I'm actively thinking about what I'm going to do next after the governor denies my pardon. Um, I've got, you know, I'm, I'm planning the next step and I've, I'm, making active preparations for it. And, mm. you know, that's, that's the way I've been doing it for 11,959 days. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Jens is like Schrodinger's cat. While he plans for his next defeat, he also has to remain hopeful. It's a maddening cognitive dissonance.
5: I think that's what keeps him alive. That's my personal fear. I mean, you have to ask him. But, you know, I I always wondered how, how, how to be able to spend 32 years in a prison and with the knowledge not being allowed to get out of it. Um, maybe because you always have hope. But then, on the other hand, Jens always so many times said, you know, hope is the most dangerous thing in prison. Mm -hmm. It's maybe the most dangerous thing. And on the other hand, it's the most precious thing because
3: I don't know what people would do without hope in prison. As my time with Jens was winding down, I asked him what his hopes were for the future.
4: I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the future. I can't afford to. Um, I've done that far too often. and I've been disappointed every single time. Um, What other people hope for me is that I will be able to use what I've experienced here over the last 33 years and use my experiences to help others. um, Speak about them publicly, write about them, and... um, That sort of thing and I have a fantastic team in Germany that's working towards making that possible and I understand and I accept that given everything that's happened um, I have a responsibility to try to use uh, my experiences to help others Um, it's a prospect I find appealing Um, In other words, I I don't want these 33 years to be a sort of a a lost time, something that they took from me.
7: Mm. I
4: want these 33 years to be something that is the foundation for building something
7: Mm. positive
4: um, so that it's not a loss, Mm -hmm. but basically raw material for Mm -hmm. creating a future um, where... This sort of thing doesn't happen like this again.
7: Mm-hmm.
4: Um so you know, I'm 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 down with
3: that. That was the press release answer. I pressed him for the real answer.
4: In my heart of hearts, what I really wish were possible. Um and I understand it's not, but it's my fantasy, is um, they fly me back to Germany and uh, I land at Frankfurt and I don't get off the plane. <laughs> and, and the plane takes off again, and it keeps on going to New Zealand. And um, somehow I you know, get past immigration control in New Zealand and just walk into the hills. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows who I am. And I'm anonymous. And I'm not... I'm not Jens Mm Züring, you know. uh, Either Jens Züring the monster, or Jens Züring, you know, the victim of a miscarriage of justice, Mm -hmm. or Jens Züring the author, or Jens Züring the public speaker. But just you know, John Smith.
3: Mm-hmm. John Smith, The Hobbit. And, <laughs> you know, just
4: right. You know, just um, you know, I I I just I don't need much. I need a good pair of sneakers to run in. Mm. I need some dumbbells because I like working out, and um, you know, one trip per week to the public library, mm. and I'm good to go. And um, and nobody knows who I am, and uh, I can leave this behind me and start over. And just, just, mm-hmm. It's a fantasy, it's not going to happen, I wish, I wish it could, I really wish it could.
3: I have two minutes left. Tell me whatever. Tell me something in two minutes. (laughs) Thank you. Oh.
4: Thank you. Thank you, fiance Chris. thank Jason Flom and John Grisham and Chip Harding and Martin Sheen and Richard Hudson and Karen Steinberger and Marcus Federer and Tom McClintock and Moses Shanefield and Chuck Reed and Andrew Griffiths and um, all the people I'm forgetting that I should be including. You know, who am I forgetting? Tell me.
3: Uh <laughs> um, I, I, I'll have to get a list out. Um, I You making me cry, I Jens?
4: Wanna, I, I wanna, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, thank, thank, thanks to everybody who's been fighting so long and so hard for me. Um, so grateful to all of you.
3: Thank um, you, Yens.
4: That's about all I got.
3: Okay.
4: Oh, Sandy Houseman.
3: Sandy. <laughs> um,
4: so. All right. You keep fighting the good fight out there.
3: You keep fighting the good fight in there.
4: Yeah, I'm tired of doing it in here.
3: <laughs> okay, well, um, get on out of here then.
4: <laughs> uh, lady, I'm trying. What's
3: keeping you, Jens? <laughs> <laughs> uh... Yeah.
4: small hearts, that's what's keeping me in here. People who cannot believe and won't believe that somebody might actually be willing to lay down his life for his friends. They could never do it themselves. So when they hear of somebody like me who actually did do that, they can't accept it. Hmm. They can't acknowledge it because, because it, there's no room for that in their hearts. And I think that hurts them. I think it hurts some people to see.
3: You have one minute remaining.
4: And I think it hurts some people to see that love can do this and that they don't have that much love in them. Yeah: I think that's really true.
3: Thank you, Jens.
4: Does that sound that, that, that makes you sound like a total prank, doesn't it?:
3: No, I mean, you are what you are, man.
0: be <laughs> a?: prick? No, I'm not I, no words escape me:
4: <laughs> You gotta laugh.
3: You gotta laugh.
4: Take
7: care.
3: Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for using GTL. And thank you for listening to The Truth About True Crime. This podcast was written and produced by me, Amanda Knox, and my partner, Christopher Robinson. This season was directed by Jordan Stone, edited by Galen Mullins, an executive produced by Malka Media, Sundance Now, and AMC Digital Studios. Be sure to check out the Sundance Now series Killing for Love, and please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.